Hi, everybody. It's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Well, different types of music move us in different ways. So I thought we'd share a couple of examples of that here this morning, let you experience it. Here is the first example. I don't know about you, but I mean, when I hear that, I kind of get goosebumps and I picture funerals that I've been at, gravesides that I've been at where that has been played. There's obviously a somberness, a reverence that, that comes there. A different type of music would be this second example. Maybe you heard this in the last month. So maybe that prompts a, a different response, right? Hopefully it prompts some, some worship. If you're familiar with the song, you know it's talking about God giving his, his son to be, to be born for us. There, that's a whole different genre of music, right? It's just there's a complexity there. When you start getting deeper into the song, you got voices singing over each other and different parts and all that. If any of you have ever inquired, maybe you sang that. Um, and then there's this, this third style, another, another style altogether. You know, it just evokes a different, I really want to just keep that song playing, you know, and just like, <laughs> let's just imagine ourselves on the beach in the sunshine, you know. So different styles of music, they, they move us in different ways. That style just kind of moves me to just like, oh, let's, let's just relax. Like, I want to put on my flip-flops and just, you know, slob around the house. Anyway, so different styles of music. Similarly, Scripture includes different genres of writing that move us in different ways. So, for example, if you've been here at all in the last year, we studied through the book of Romans. So Romans is a very specific kind of genre that's reflected in most of the letters, Paul's letters in the, the New Testament. And it's very, it's very logical, you know, there's, there's arguments that he introduces and then he builds and he gives more examples and, and lots of detail. And so it's very heady. So that's Romans, for example. Then you have Psalms, which is completely different, completely different genre. It's all about emotions. 
And so it's about connecting. And, and the beautiful thing about Psalms is that whatever emotion you may be experiencing at any moment, you can find a Psalm that reflects that, and it gives you words to be able to pray and to connect to the Lord in the midst of whatever that emotion is that's going on in, in your life. Then you have the Gospels, which is an example of narrative. It's, it's, there are lots of narrative scriptures, but that's a specific example, which is focused in on Jesus, focuses us on learning who Jesus is by watching him in everyday life. Like, what, what is he saying? What is he doing with people? How is he interacting with the world around him? That's, that's narrative. So those are several genres. Then you have the prophets. The prophets, I dare say, is probably the, the genre that most of us have the hardest time connecting to, have the hardest time understanding. And so don't raise your hand, but I suspect that probably at some point, if, if any of you are reading the Bible with any kind of regularity, maybe you've skipped over some of the prophets. Maybe you've like skimmed it at least and just like, yeah, I gotta move on. I'm just, I'm, I'm not getting what they're laying down here. So I'm just gonna move on to, to something else. If you, for example, like I'm, I'm restarting my through the year Bible reading so that I'll read through the Bible again this year. Uh, maybe you did that last year and when you got to the prophets, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna focus on the New Testament part today and I'm just not, you know, giving as much energy to that. Well, here's, I, in, in the event that you have read through the Bible and you have skipped over Hosea, then I have really good news for you because we are gonna study Hosea over the next several, several months. And because I know that the prophets are challenging to wrap our heads around and understand, what I wanna do today, just as we get started, is to ask and answer the question, why read Hebrew prophecy at all? I mean, why not skip it? I mean, Hosea was written over 2,700 years ago, and it was written to some specific people in specific situation, and it's very different than the situation I'm in. So really, is there anything there for me to get out of it? And you can guess what my answer to that is going to be. Yes, there is, and there's more there to get out of it than you probably realize. So to get started, would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3? We're not actually going to turn to Hosea today, although I'm going to be referencing some verses there. We're going to start with 2 Timothy 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on a seat close to you, and that is on page 1099. So before we get into Hosea, I just want to lay some groundwork that I think is going to help us appreciate it more once we, we get into it. Um, the series is called God's Way with the Wayward. And what we're, we're gonna see is, we're, we're gonna get up close and personal with a, an experience of being wayward in a marriage and then how that applies and, and is a picture of what is going on in the whole country of Hosea's time and not so different from our time as well. But I wanna start with the Bible's answer to the question, why read 
Hebrew prophecy, and we find it here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness. So there's four things listed there. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And of course, man of God can be expanded there to, to all people, to all humans. So that, that is the purpose. So verse 16 says, uh, this is the quiz, how many scriptures are breathed out by God? Okay, I think, I, I want to be sure that you're awake. I know it's very cold outside, and I want to get you, okay. How many scriptures are breathed out by God? Okay, that was a little better. Okay, so for Paul, remember Paul, as Paul is writing this, and he, when he's thinking of scripture, he's thinking of what we would call our Old Testament, and what I prefer to refer to as the, the Hebrew scriptures, because when I'm having lunch with my friend Rabbi Aaron, from down the road here at the synagogue, I don't like to say Old Testament because it just sounds a little bit insulting. So we just say, we just use a different term, which is absolutely accurate, the Hebrew scriptures. So that's what Paul is thinking of. And that those Hebrew scriptures include the prophets. So let's show you a picture here of, of all the, the books of the Bible. And the prophets are right there on that middle shelf. They're in the pink and the green. And so they're grouped into to two classifications, typically, when, we, when scholars talk about them. So there's the major prophets and then the minor prophets. The major prophets are in pink. The minor prophets are in green. The major and the minor simply refers to the length of the books. So it has nothing to do with the content. So the minor prophets are not less important their messages, it has nothing to do with their message. It simply has to do with their length. So the, the longer prof, prophetic books are those pink ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are the four prophets that are writing. The other book that's thrown in there is Lamentations, which is a, a poetic book that goes along with Jeremiah. So those are the major prophets. And then you have 12 minor prophets, which begin with, that grouping begins with Hosea. They are roughly chronological, not, not totally, but roughly chronological. And Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And that is never more clear, actually, than in the prophets, because the prophets are constantly saying, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. That, that phrase occurs over 400 times in the Hebrew scriptures. So this is the prophets that are saying, this, this is what God says. They are, they are expressing what God is breathing out. So in prophecy, we hear God's heart. I mean, that, that's what we're hearing as we hear these words that are breathed out. We, we hear God's heart. We're hearing what's important to him. We're hearing what disappoints him, what pleases him. So I like how the, the New Living Translation captures this. All scripture is inspired by God 
and is useful, that's their word for profitable, to, number one, teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. I hope I counted, used the right fingers when I was counting. If you were here last week, we got a lesson on that. I'm not sure what I'm doing. Anyway, um, so again, quiz, how many of the scriptures are breathed out by God? All of them. And so that includes Hosea. So I want to dig into the rest of verse 16 here because there are three reasons for us to read the, the Hebrew prophets. It's, it's because, again, from verse 16, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction. I'm, I'm grouping those together and for training and righteousness. So I want to talk about each one of those individually. First, the prophets are profitable for, for teaching. So the prophets tend to be, and we can go to that next slide. Um, oh, not that one. Yeah. Oh, keep going. Keep going. All right. There we go. Um, the prophets are profitable for teaching because they, they are sometimes hard to understand. They're hard for us to wrap our heads around and we need a little bit of help. We probably need a little more help with the prophets than we do, for example, with Romans, right? Romans is, we, we tend to, in our Western world, think logically. And so I know there are difficult things sometimes that Paul says there, but at least it's kind of laid out in a logical fashion and we can, we can follow it. it the, one of the challenges we face in the prophets is that most of them are written, most of the books are written most of Hosea is written as poetry. So I want to talk a little bit about Hebrew poetry. The next few minutes, you're going to feel like you're in an HLA class, okay? not an ELA class, not English and language arts. This is a Hebrew and language arts class. So we're going to talk about Hebrew poetry, all right, for, for a few minutes. Um, the, the main characteristic of Hebrew poetry is very different from English. It's not rhyming. And I realize we have English poems that don't rhyme as well, and it's characterized in, in other different ways. But rhyming tends, that's maybe the first thing that pops into our mind. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, and that's fine. That's actually good for us because we wouldn't be able to understand or pick up on that at all anyway. But what Hebrew poetry does is that it operates a lot in couplets of lines and parallelism, known as parallelism. So I want to give you the, the three most common types of parallelism. You find these in the prophets. You find these in Psalms. You find these in Proverbs as well. So the most common type is synonymous, synonymous parallelism. And that's where the second line repeats the idea of the first line. So an example, I'll give you all examples from Hosea. Hosea 4 16 says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. So that's two lines that are saying the same idea. And so keep in mind that Hosea would have been writing to a very agrarian farming kind of community. So many people that are hearing or reading this would own their own heifer, or they would know someone who owns a heifer, and they would have experience of the stubbornness of a heifer. Now for us, I think what comes to mind probably for us as a stubborn animal is what? A, a donkey, right? I mean, we can picture a donkey with a rope around its neck and the owner's trying to, to pull it. I mean, sometimes I'm doing that with my dog in a leash and it's like, okay, I'm wanting you to come this way right now and you're not wanting to do that. So we have this picture in our mind of what a stubborn animal looks like. 
what a stubborn heifer looks like. And God says, Israel is stubborn in that same way. He says, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to lead you. I'm trying to bring you in a certain direction. And you're just like digging your heels in. That's synonymous parallelism. The second is antithetical parallelism. So this is the opposite of that. This is where the second line contrasts the first line. So Hosea 7.14 says, they do not cry to me, God speaking, that actually should have been capitalized, from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. So God, in the context here, is, is saying, what I want is for you to cry to me from the heart, to cry in repentance, to recognize and to cry out for me, to, be, to want to be closer. But he says, instead, people are just wailing on their beds. They're just crying about whatever bothered them, about what happened to them that day, completely oblivious to honoring God at all. And so he's, it's drawing this contrast between the way things are and the way God would want them to be. The, the third example, the third um, parallelism is synthetic parallelism. This is where the second line completes the first line. So Hosea 5 says, Ephraim is oppressed. And we, we will see as we study into Hosea that Ephraim is just another way of referring to Israel. So he says, Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. So the second line gives us the cause of the, it explains why the first line is happening. I mean, in the first line, like who wants to be oppressed? Who wants to be crushed in judgment? And so God gives this very clear explanation. Here's why you're experiencing that. It's because you've been determined to go after filth. If you would stop doing that and turn to me, then things can turn around for you. So that's some features of Hebrew poetry and parallelism. Another challenge that we have as we read the, the prophets is the, the figurative language and metaphors that we are not familiar with. So we're gonna unpack some of them. And I will just tell you that the, at the speed that we're, we're moving through this, we're gonna take about a chapter a week in, in Hosea, there's no possible way that we will be able to look at every line and every metaphor and, you know, and, and explain all of that. And that's okay, because I actually, I love what one scholar said about this. He said, um, and this, this applies, again, whether we're reading the prophets, maybe sometimes reading the Psalms or, or the Proverbs, don't stop to rationalize every metaphor. We can rationalize stuff to death. But he says, let the prophetic images wash over you. So it's kind of like music, kind of like the music that we listened to earlier. God is wanting to move our, our hearts. We're, we're not going to get every detail of everything that's, that's in the book, but we will get the message of what's in the book, what God is wanting to get across to, to us. And then we're also going to encounter living object lessons. So for sure, we're going to encounter that in Hosea. It, it actually shows up in many of, of the prophets. But in the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with it, the object lesson that we'll encounter right at the very beginning is God tells Hosea as a prophet, I want you to go marry a prostitute and have a family with her. She's going to be unfaithful to you. And that whole living object lesson is going to be a picture of what's happening 
between the nation of Israel and God. So God is the husband and the nation who is running off and, and being unfaithful. So this is a living object lesson. Now, if you've been around for a while, you know I sometimes use object lessons. I was thinking back to what, what is the most complex object lesson I've done, and it was last year during the Romans series. Some of you maybe were here, but um, David Christ built me a little cell, and I started the message in a cell and in a jumpsuit like I was in jail, and then kind of illustrated what it looks like to get free, and so stepped out of the jail and came and took the jumpsuit off, and then had this military, you know, stuff on underneath to say that, you know, we don't we don't just move from having sin, being a slave to sin. Now we're a slave to God. Now we're serving Him. We're under His authority. Anyway, that was the most complex thing I've ever done, and I had to think through all these pieces and practice it because I've learned the hard way with object lessons that if you don't practice ahead of time, then something is gonna go wrong in front of everybody. So you need to figure that out ahead of time. Anyway, all that. So it was really complex, but can I just say, that's like nothing like, like Hosea, go marry a, a prostitute, go marry an unfaithful. I mean, that's like, that is all in. And that is, I mean, God, God does that. I mean, there were other prophets that God told, you know, I want you to go give your message with no clothes on and stuff. And I'm just like, wow, that's intense. And so we're not gonna do any object lessons like that here, but we will talk about them. And what, what that says to me, and, it, and especially, well, I don't wanna give too much away about the book, but it's, this is the intensity of God's heart. I mean, in prophecy, we hear God's heart and, and God made the ultimate sacrifice. He is, he is building up through all of these prophets to, to the coming of Jesus where he is going to give up what is most precious to him and make the hardest sacrifice of all. And so as he calls on these prophets, he's like, you're gonna share in some of this difficulty. I want, I want you to picture and illustrate for people my, my heart and the lengths that I am willing to go to to rescue my, my people. So the prophets are profitable for teaching. Secondly, the prophets are profitable for reproof and correction. So we, we need to hear the things that God says about how we are living wrong, the, the things that grieve and anger him. I mean, we, we need to hear his, his heart. And so this is often confrontational. I mean, God has to call people up and, and call them back to him because we are just prone to stray. We are prone to do the wrong thing. And it, and it recalls for reproof and correction. And so this is a, just a good time to remind us all that the Bible is not a book that is written to teach us how to live more moral lives. The Bible is not a book to give us moral instructions. It does. I mean, there are moral instructions, but the Bible's primary objective is to teach us how not moral we are, how far short we fall, and how desperately we need intervention. We need rescue. We need a, a savior. And so... That's why God goes about having to reprove and correct. The prophets expose. See, the prophets expose sin for what it is. 
We are deceived by sin into thinking that it's going to deliver something that it cannot possibly deliver. And so the prophets are exposing sin for what it is to say what it really does is it destroys. It it ruins your lives. And so please come out of it. That is what God is doing. So so it's intense at times. It's not always easy to, to stomach but it's something that we need. Because we've, we've probably all had the opportunity at some point to observe, I'm sure hopefully from a distance, a parent who never corrects their child. If you've ever observed that going on, then you know how important reproof and correction is from a heavenly father. There's one more reason to study, and that is that the prophets are profitable for training in righteousness. So God is calling his people to live right because he is, he is jealous for our hearts. I mean, think, think about the righteous jealousy of a husband or wife whose spouse is unfaithful to them. I mean, that prompts a righteous anger And that picture is is God's heart for his people. God created human beings as the pinnacle of creation. Because I'm reading again through the Bible, I just read again the creation account. And God gives specific instructions to humans. He gives them responsibility that he doesn't give to any of the other parts of creation. I mean, all of creation is good. All of creation is very good. But there's something unique about human beings, and they are made in the image of God. And so God says, for these people who are my most precious creation, how much does it break his heart for people to turn away from him and to pursue other gods, so-called gods, that are not really God's. That's that's what stirs God's heart up and causes him to to bring reproof and correction and say, I want to train you in what is right. So in prophecy, we hear God's heart. We hear God's heart of accountability because he is holy. We hear his heart of, of mercy because he is love. And so we're going to hear that cycle over and over again, accountability and and mercy. It's the same heart that we see in the cross. Accountability and mercy. Because of God's holiness, there had to be a sacrifice for sin to cover over our, our sin. See, I think we, we just wish that God's love would make sin irrelevant and that he says, that, that's okay. We, we don't have to worry about that. You can just come be close to me. But because God is so holy, and we, we sang about this. See, see what, we, what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to minimize God's holiness and we tend to minimize our sinfulness. And that's how we close the gap between God and us. 
we say, yeah, God, yeah, you're kind of holy. I, I don't know, you know, but it's not really that high. And I'm not really that bad. And so we close the gap that way. But here's, here's the genius of God. God is perfectly, infinitely holy. I cannot stretch my hand far enough to show the gap. He is perfectly holy, and we don't, need to, we don't need to minimize his holiness, and we don't need to minimize our sinfulness. God is perfectly holy, and we are desperately self-centered and prone to straying away from the path that God has for us. We don't have to minimize any of that because Jesus is the one who stood in the gap. And God says, I love you, but you can't be close to me as you are. You need a covering. You need someone to take away that, that sin in order for you to come close to me. And so out of God's love, he made the sacrifice that was necessary. He brings the accountability, but he, he is so full of mercy that he says, I will be the sacrifice for you so that you can come close to me. We're gonna celebrate that in communion in a few minutes. And if you have never embraced Christ as the one to wash away your sin, if you have been minimizing God's holiness, minimizing your sinfulness, can I just encourage you to make today a day to stop doing that and let God be as holy as he is and you be as stained and ugly and depraved as you are because the love of Christ stands in that gap to wash you clean so that you can be near to God. Make today your day to embrace Christ for that. A simple way to summarize the question, why read Hebrew prophecy, is John Stott, who said, God still speaks through what he has spoken. God still speaks through what he has spoken. In prophecy, we hear God's Heart. It's different language than we're used to, different imagery, but God's call to those in ancient times is still his call to us today. I'll close with this from Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. He strikes us down to cause us to realize our need for him, but then he, he is the one who binds us up. So as we press into the prophecy of Hosea, I just wanna encourage you to ask God to open your heart to be moved. Sometimes you'll be moved by, by joy, by gratitude for how wonderful God is. And sometimes will be moved by repentance and reverence. But may our hearts be moved as we hear more of his heart. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge now that all of Scripture is breathed out by you, and that includes the prophets that we confess are sometimes difficult for us to understand. But Lord, we ask that in the coming weeks and months that you would open our minds and our, and our hearts, Lord, to, to grasp 
the message of Hosea, which is still a message for, for us today. Lord, thank you that your heart is consistent. You don't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so your way with the wayward, your way of dealing with the wayward is still as it is today, as it was 2,700 years ago and any other timeline, any other point on the timeline. Lord, may we come to you um, broken, humble, repentant, ready to hear what you have to say to us, and then acting on it appropriately. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.